0: Welcome to Superlative. I am your podcast host, Arielle Adams. In each episode, you will meet someone who has inspired or takes inspiration from today's wristwatch industry. Every week, let's dive deep into the world of crafting exotic timepieces from the people who dream them up to the people who dream of them. It's time to get started and meet today's guests. Hey, everyone. Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mark Frankel, and he is the founder of Long Island Watch. Mark, welcome.
1: Hey, thank you, Ariel. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
0: I've been wanting to have you on the show for a long time, and then we sort of serendipitously ran into one another at, I think it was one of the wind up events. But remind me, do you do you have any perception of when we first met? I feel like it was 2008 2009 something like that so
1: i can't put a year to it but i do know where it was and what it was it was um d- dinner with traser um, right and it was i'll i'll name drop it was barry Klesmer. oh yeah and, barry and it and it was a dinner a couple of guys were there um i want to say one of the guys from Watchco was there was this in vegas you, it was in vegas yeah, yeah. I was there, you were there, and, you know, a, a smattering of other people. Um, and that was, you were, I think you might have been a blog to read still back yeah. then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a, is that 2008? I guess it could be. I mean, I, I feel like it might be longer than that.
0: Well, so the, the website started in 2007. And okay. it was around 2009 that I moved over
1: to a blog to watch. Okay, so the name, so it could be you could be right on the money then too. It seems like longer than 2008, but I, I guess that's 15 so years ago. So that's pretty impressive in this industry <laughs> since then, right? Like, oh, absolutely.
0: I, I, I so l- let's just sort of give you a little bit of a background. So Long Island Watch, it's a website, mm-hmm. longislandwatch.com. Yes, uh, is is, and we're going to talk a lot about this, but it's a store. It's an online store to buy a whole variety of brands. Focused again. I actually don't know how high you go up, but for the longest time, it's been sort of very, you know, reasonably priced. We'll call them, you know, like democratically priced watches. Um, uh, you, would you would you would you reframe it differently than that?
1: I call it affordable. Affordable. It just, you know, when I started the business, uh, you know, twenty years ago, that was the. That was the term I. I but it's I a
0: relative used. term, right? Because some of these people think yes. five thousand bucks is affordable, and someone else might say you're crazy. So that's why that's it's why sort of I like, like
1: that's why I like the term affordable, because everyone's <laughs> definition of affordable is different.
0: <laughs> but let, let's let's talk about this. You know, both you and I came from a place of loving watches and trying to find a way uh, to to make it our our full time work. What were you doing before Long Island Watch? And, and spend just a couple minutes explaining how it started
1: and how it became your full time. Career? Sure. I could probably do the whole podcast on just that topic. I know it's a big um, one. Yeah, it's a big one. So let's see. So I am classically trained in um, mechanical engineering. I have a bachelor's and a master's uh, of engineering in mechanical engineering. I also have a New York State professional engineering license. Um, That's what I went to school for. I graduated in 98 um, from the Cooper Union in Manhattan. And the way the story goes was a couple of years into my into my career, was around 2000 or so, I was out to lunch. I've always liked watches. Let me say, let me, I guess I'll preface it with that. I was in a watch fan. My dad was a watch person, not not, not like a watch nut like I might be now, but he, he, had a, he had a bunch of nice pieces. And I was out to lunch with a bunch of my college buddies, and one of them was wearing an open heart watch, which I, you know... I knew about watches, but not a ton. I mistaked it for a tourbillon, and he's like, oh, I don't know what that is, but he gave it to me. I'm like, oh, it's not, and I and it was really nice. I'm like, what'd you pay for it? And it was, I don't know. This is back when the euro first started trading, and it was actually less than a dollar, and he paid like 80 US dollars for it, and I was... I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, that's really, that's really affordable or really cheap or whatever you want to call it. And I don't know why I got it in my head that I had just finished reading Rich Dad Poor Dad. And I got it in my head that, like, wow, I could probably sell this. I mean, this is something that I could do and enjoy. And just, you know, serendipitously, I contacted the, Person that he bought it from on eBay. I asked the guy, "Hey, can I buy ten watches and sell them here in the states?" And he said yes. And he sold me ten watches at like seventy dollars each, and, and I sold all them on sucked. eBay. That's, all it, that's all. it took This whole business started from seven hundred bucks, um, and I sold—I would say maybe seven or eight of them out of the ten for for a profit after so, so you back, know, all said and done. Here.
0: You wanted yeah. to start selling on eBay. Obviously, it's a little bit more complicated. Everyone knows you, you buy low, you sell high, but like. Yeah. What were you doing that that company wasn't able to do? Meaning, where did you where did you in that brief space
1: add value? So they were selling on eBay almost almost entirely. Um, It was an Elise watch, which actually is still in business. Yeah, I remember Um, those guys. Yeah, Um, and it was actually through the guy who owned the Trius brand, which I believe is no longer around and the value i added was that i was in the states whereas they were in germany so when someone you know in this business it's it's interesting if you're an american you generally don't like to purchase things from overseas and bring them into the states i say most americans when they once they see hey shipping from germany or shipping from the uk they're like eh uh, I but they don't worry about
0: customs and fees. They worry about and all that stuff, but yet
1: the stuff. people on the other side, they buy stuff from America all the time. Really? So it's kind of crazy, but yeah, um, so I, the value I added was I was already here. I had already paid the duty on it. I already had it, and they could get it in just a couple of days, and And that was it. That, that was pretty much it. Um,
0: Did you have an eBay account? Did you start a new one for e- this?
1: I had an eBay account under my name for years. The eBay account was since the late 90s, right? Um, and I changed it to Long Island Watch eventually. I don't know what year I changed it to Long Island Watch, but I sold on eBay for t- 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 close to two years or a year and a half. I might mean, stayed on eBay for a while, but then I, I launched the website in
0: 2003. So what what, what? what? And again, this is very early on. But yes. what what did it take at the time? Did you just take pictures of the watch? Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. All, it know,
1: it ca- all it took was a all it took was a camera. So this is so digital cameras had come out. Um, you know, you got to think back now. This is 2001. Digital cameras. I was married in 2001. I shot my honeymoon on film. And then (laughs) shortly after we came back is when I got my first Kodak, (laughs) Kodak, (laughs) Kodak digital camera. I got Um, my first in
0: 2001. I remember my first.
1: Yeah. yeah. So that was, you know, um, I was able to take digital pictures and upload them to eBay and, you know, make a listing, just a plain text listing. Uh, And, you know, I knew I knew my in cost and I could figure out shipping and just try to sell it and set a reserve. So I. Wouldn't lose money because I was very risk averse, being an engineer, and uh, you know sell those suckers. <laughs> and that's and and
0: and that started it. And I guess the interesting point is you grew and grew and added on, but in a very reasonable way. I think that you've probably seen from the side a number of companies uh come into the retail space yes. too hot, too yes. fast. And you yes. maybe it's your engineer, but talk a little bit about. That longevity?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, it's very, the, the the growth of the website, I mean, I can't say if it was purposeful or not, but it was very slow and very organic. Um, there were no big acquisitions ever made. There was never a loan taken out, um, never borrowed money. Everything was, everything is still my own. All the inventory I own today is still all my own money. Um, nobody's a partial owner. And, you know, I, I as, as I said before, being an engineer, I'm very, you know, I don't like risk. And I had a job, I didn't leave my job until, I guess we'll get into that part of the story, until about a decade later um, when I could do it. Um, but you know, I still had a a position to fall back on, um, my, my regular day job as an aerospace engineer. And, you know, not until, I would say, the mid, like 2013, 2014, did I really look back and be like, wow, this thing really grew. But, you know, as you sat there and daily, it was very slow, you know, extremely slow. You know, I remember the days of sitting in a spare bedroom in my my house, you know, filling in order every other day and then you know eventually i moved into the basement of, of that house and, you know and then it grew and grew and grew until where i am now um but yeah just very slow and i didn't even realize it and as you said or you know as my, as my marketing guy said you know if i took millions of dollars today and I invest and and I try to build what I have today, I don't think it would ever happen. Um, I I think being slow and being ingrained in people's minds on the forums and all these other places I lived for years, I think really is part of the success of the business.
0: And what what was marketing like back at the time? Because I want to compare and contrast a little bit with how it's very different today, but you mentioned yeah. the forum. So you, you know, you had this website, you had some things yeah. on eBay, but I guess yeah. the big question is, how did you let people know about Long Island Watch and about the specific watches
1: that you were selling? So I really don't know. Um, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I, I, my website was launched on Front Page for Dummies um, when I got to the website. Uh, excuse me, it was launched on FrontPage. The book I read was FrontPage for Dummies. Uh, if you don't know what FrontPage is, I'm sure you know, but, you know, it was Microsoft's web publisher. Yeah, very basic. Tool. Uh, very basic. Uh, it was all, I did I did all that myself. Let's see, a couple of years in, I started hearing about this thing called SEO. <laughs> didn't know what the hell, it, I didn't know what it was, and I did pay a firm. Would I, what well, even today, what would actually still be a hefty sum for me today, um, I paid it um because They said it would bring me all sorts of good stuff, and I stopped that after a year or so because it really didn't do anything. I think I was just throwing money in the toilet. It was just basically they were giving me meta yeah, at this point. I know what they were doing, they were giving me meta, you know, meta words to embed in the page, yeah. Um, but you know, I realized back then, you know, so this is this is 20 years ago. So, who were the players online 20 years ago in watches? It was, I think, Ashford was around, oh, yeah, um, Blue Nile. Um, DWS Discount Watch Store. He's no longer around. Um, you had Android Wing was around, uh, and a couple other stores. But a lot of these stores, you know, whether then online, whether it be Macy's or whoever, they're selling Seiko, they're selling Citizen, they're selling Casio, and I can't compete on that stuff. But I had the Elise and and the Trius and the Junkers and the Vostok Europe. And no one else had that stuff. So I learned from an early... You know, early on, that if you have stuff that no one else has, when they search for, it, if someone, if you can get someone to search for it, you will appear at the top, and that was kind of my modus operandi for years. I couldn't get Seiko, I couldn't get Citizen, I couldn't get these bigger brands simply because they they still believed at that point. Well, they believed up until just a couple of years ago. And you have, that, you have on, them now. That so online that's the
0: spoiler. Yeah,
1: now. yeah, yeah. Of course, but you know, they believed. I would say a lot of the bigger brands, you know. Spoiler alert! Up until I would say 2018, 2019, they still didn't believe that online was the way forward because these, these companies are loaded with dinosaurs, and you know th- they wouldn't give you the time of day unless you had a brick and mortar store. So I st- I stayed with these smaller esoteric brands so that if someone looked for an Elise, uh, I would float up I would be number one number two um and that was about, and that but that business cadence worked for me you know if while running my full-time being at a full-time career if I had to fulfill and ship 50 60 70 orders a night, I wouldn't have been able to do it, right. um, you know, but I was able to fill. I could fill – a busy day was two orders, three orders. Like, oh, okay, it takes me a half hour. I could take care of that. Um, but, yeah, it's, just, you know, it's just a very slow slow growing. But that's how I kind of made myself relevant in a, in a very – not crowded space but just a, a very difficult space as a small guy.
0: Well, you, you had something exclusive, in other words. You had yes. products that if you were going to go on Google and search for them – you knew that you would come up and, and no one else would and if it was especially in the United States maybe there'd be some foreign seller but you said earlier many consumers in the US preferred to buy from within the US so you had that advantage i guess the logical question after that is once you started having competition meaning other stores online in the United States that sold some of the same brands did your did your strategy have to change at all
1: not really um uh, uh, what happened in 2000 I think it was two thousand five, two thousand six. There was this company online that sold only books. You may have heard of them. Um, they were called Amazon, <laughs> and they started to experiment with marketplace. And out of the blue, I'm at Walbaum's, and <laughs> and I get a phone call on my cell phone from Seattle. I'm like, who the hell's calling me from Seattle? And I pick up, and it was Amazon, and they were looking for beta te- beta testers for watches. Interesting. They explained it to me, and I'm like, well, I'm like, I don't understand. You sell books? They're like, Yeah, but we're trying to sell other stuff now. You know, we're trying to get people to come on and sell their wares, and we'll take a percentage of it. And that was my next step. You know, I was I was with Amazon for a number of years. Okay, um, and that helped me then compete with the bigger guys because they, they kind of leveled the playing field. Um, you know, for for smaller stores, you know, versus and, larger. And how, stores. And how was
0: that as an advantage for you? I mean, just you know, explain to people being. In the Amazon marketplace, did
1: what? Did it expand yeah. reach? Did it, was it automatic orders? What what did it do for you that allowed you to compete? So it expands reach a hundred percent because now if Amazon, you know, let's say my let's say my store got I don't know thirty visitors a day, you know, compared to the ten thousand a day it gets now or twenty thousand a day. Um, You know, Amazon got millions a day and all you had to do was try to funnel the people to your product. But if they're looking for watches, great. And if there's maybe 500 vendors selling watches, then you have a pretty good shot at popping up. And then if you just lower your price enough, you'll win the buy box. And once you win the buy box, that's when your orders start pouring in or coming in. I just say pouring in, coming in. And this, my store name on Amazon was Long Island Watch, so they would find your store. And then, you know, eventually, like everyone else learned, you just go and you search out the store online. Interesting, interesting. And how th- – that that was great for
0: a while, and then my presumption is that Amazon started to get increasingly saturated, and it was
1: obviously less yeah, effective. Yeah, after a while, it just uh, – I want to say it was never fun, Um I did stop with them. Uh, I don't know. Let's see. It's probably about. It was pre-pandemic, 2018 or so. We had a, f- I, I quote unquote, falling out, if you will. Wow. They, there, there was a point where there were they, they changed. Were, they changed a lot. They changed. There was a point though. They were nearly 40 percent of my revenue, of wow. my yearly revenue, and that freaked the hell out of me. I can understand um, that because you know you you get into launching your own business so you can be your own boss. But if someone else controls 40% of your revenue, guess what? You're not the boss anymore. Um, so I made a purposeful shift in strategy, and I raised all my Amazon prices so stuff stopped selling on there, you know, on purpose. Wow. Um, yeah, and eventually, you know, I, I got a string of Bad feedbacks, three or four in a row, and because my order volume was so low, um, they suspended me. Um, I, I appealed. I did appeal. They denied my appeal, and I just basically just said, "Okay, well, that's it. I'm not going to appeal again. I'm I'm done. You know, we're, we're done." And at that point, it didn't matter anyway because Amazon was such a small percentage of what I did. Uh, it was okay to leave.
0: Was that an inevitable change, or do you think that Amazon? mismanage something that was oh, good. They,
1: yeah. yeah, they. I think that. Well, you know, I I don't sell on anywhere anymore except for the website. But as far as other market, I've been on. I've been on a lot of marketplaces. I've been on Newegg. I've been on Rakuten. I've been on Amazon, USCA, UK. Um, I was also on another Amazon. I forgot which one. Maybe it was Germany. Anyway, uh, the the big. The big thing is Amazon is extremely, extremely, extremely customer-centric. The customer can never, ever be wrong. Um, only in my final years of selling on Amazon did they launch a program. I forgot what the acronym is, but it was one where you could appeal internally and say, hey, this customer used the item for like a week and a half, abused the hell out of it, and sent it back to me. You know, because that's what people do on Amazon. They they get the product, they use it, they don't like it, they send it back, and they say, oh, I never touched it. And you have to give them their money back. Um, so they're very customer-centric, whereas I found eBay, even to this day, is very vendor. I think they're more vendor-centric, and they take care of their vendor's. Um, and that's why you hear a lot of Amazon horror stories of accounts just getting locked for, you know, a bad feedback or, you know, uh, my whole Amazon UK debacle um, that I did a video on, which is totally crazy. They basically held me at ransom saying I wow. owed them like th- thousands of pounds and I could never figure out why. Um, and they couldn't tell me why, which is really weird. Um, but just all this BS, I just finally was like, I got to get I got to get rid of these people.
0: So at first... These platforms helped vastly accelerate your business and amplify oh, yeah. the number of orders. But at some point, you're saying that it changed. Now, was it because you'd been on those platforms for a while? Or were those platforms, in your opinion, no longer good for businesses of your type at all?
1: Yeah, so I, I do. I'm honest. And I tell people, you know, I used them for all the good that I could get out of them, I I definitely was a pump and dumper. Uh, you know, I do have them to thank for you know doing more business and getting my name out there. Um, what changed with them? I think just the sheer vastness of their of their new quote unquote vendor base, the hundreds of thousands of vendors that are on it. They certainly do not have the manpower to. St- to troubleshoot, staff, assist. Almost every email you send them is read and replied to by... Well, I guess today it are probably AI, but back then it was just machine. It would just pick up certain words and just right. spit back a reply. Um, I think that's really the problem. And, you know, I look at these, you know, I talk to small business owners often, and when they tell me how much they do on Amazon, I just, I cringe. I go, you got to you gotta get out of that cycle. Yeah, they're great, but just what happens one day when they flip the switch off? What are you going to do? And they look at me like, well, that's that's not going to happen. And I'm like, how can you say that it happened to me? A guy who had like a 99.9% feedback rating. I mean, it could it could happen, you yeah. know, anything. Um, so, yeah, I think they just got too big, and they just really didn't care anymore. And the other big thing with Amazon, as more and more vendors got on, is something that we call a race to the bottom. Everyone's just competing for the lowest price, the lowest ship price, I should say. So, I'm at one hundred and fifty. um, let's say Joma shops in for 140 I say oh, I'm gonna to go to 135 Joma shop goes to 133 I go to 131 and we're all raising the price to the bottom meanwhile you're maybe the vendor says well you can't uh, excuse me the, the you know the manufacturer distributor wholesaler says you can't sell below X price minimum advertised pricing that's a whole nother thing um, and then after Amazon takes their ridiculous cut which nowadays I think is 16 to 17 percent in the watches category. interesting. Um, and then you pay to ship it. And then you have to pay them for the listing and everything. You could be selling a $200 watch and walking away with three bucks in your pocket. That's not my model. That might be other people's models. And I, I know it is. You know, there are people that live on a few points of margin because they do the volume. But that's not where I live. I live on, you know, you know, much, much better margins than that.
0: So again, you you brought up a lot of important points, and I want to talk more about the sort of race to the bottom in a moment. But I want to talk about this, these notion of these selling platforms. Uh, Amazon's one, eBay's one, yep. you know, Chrono Twenty Four is one. There's uh, yep. a, a number of them of the, and there's even more growing. So here's sure. my question: You as a retailer, dealer, whatnot, give them some advice. Give them a statement. You are now speaking to these platforms. Tell them. What it is that you're looking for, and what what how not to screw up? Because I hear, uh, I I work on both sides of the aisle. I guess also sure. if you include the consumer, and I hear things from from your side of it in terms of you know the the, the price, the the percentage they take, not mm-hmm. being able to speak to people. So in a couple statements, tell those platforms what they need to do to earn and maintain your business.
1: Sure. Well, I would say that they need to understand that the lifeblood of the system. They have to make a decision. Is the lifeblood of the system the customer or is it the vendor? Of course, without either, the system collapses. But I feel they are turning away vendors um, or turning off vendors uh, in a major way. And I don't think that vendors are incentivized enough to um, to maintain on the platform and sell their wares. Uh, the fees, fees are fees. I mean – in a in the watch industry, seventeen um, percent is you know that's kind of hefty. I know in the electronics field it's even heavier than that. Um, I feel like the value they add for taking that much money is not all that extravagant. Um, you you know, and we're not even touching. You can do FBA and then pay storage fees and all that other BS. Um, but I think if they want to win back vendors and keep vendors, they need to make the platform more attractive to vendors and definitely more friendly to vendors.
0: How can they add value? we are talking about, you know, they take a fee and that's okay if they add value. It used to be that they added sales. You would just be on Amazon, yeah. as you said, and sales would come.
1: That doesn't happen anymore. Yes.
0: Yeah. So how do you think they should do that, again, from the position of you, you know, won't be on these platforms unless you see that value?
1: Right. So... I guess it depends on who the vendor is. I get aggravated because when I was with them, you know, they tried just to get you to spend more money. You should pay for sponsored listings. You should pay for this. You should pay for that. I think actually maybe the biggest disservice that they ever did was allowing everyone and their mother to join the platform.
0: Well, the funny thing is you became the customer when you're like, wait a minute. I thought I was a vendor supplier, and now you're like, wait a minute. The customer is the customer, and I'm also the customer?
1: Right. And I think they—I believe watches now is an invitation-only or a uh, application-only process. Um, but it, it was at a point where it just got inundated with people selling watches. And maybe there's a limit. Maybe you don't need, you know, 15,000 watch vendors or whatever the number is. Maybe you can gate it. Maybe it's 1,000, and that's it. Because I think— you know, once it gets too saturated with vendors, then the race to the bottom starts, uh, and it's impossible for these smaller players to make headway.
0: So, I wrote an article that was published a couple of uh, weeks ago, maybe two or three weeks ago, on a blog to watch, and it was about this issue. And I, I basically frame it as, as I call it fragmentation in mm-hmm. the market uh, of online watch sales. And my, my basic thesis is that there are far too many places to buy watches online right now. There's really no way for anyone to compete with one another outside of race to the bottom. And mm. that this is a serious problem uh, going along with what I call the last mile issue, which which here I, I basically define as being you can get somebody you know to learn about a watch. You can get them excited about a watch. You can get them to desire the watch. But to get them to actually buy it and right. to funnel them to a, a comfortable place to do it is actually the problem right now. And so right. let's talk about your opinions. Again, sure. you— You are a legacy player in a space that is now so crowded. I just want to frame it for people. It's not just third-party watch doors like Long Island Watch. We're talking fragmentation that's, do you buy it from the brand or do you buy it from a third party? Do you buy new? Do you buy used? Do you buy online? Do you buy offline? So talk a little bit about this.
1: Yeah, so, okay. um, I definitely have a lot to say about that. and Half the thoughts are probably going to fall out of my brain. But you mentioned first that, you know, you can purchase now from a lot of brands that have gone direct. What, is Breitling direct now, I think, or there's some big guys are direct. But let's take, you know, Orient. Orient went direct, um, direct direct-to-consumer sales. uh, Several years, I was carrying the brand for several years, and they went direct. Now, how does that work? I'm buying it at a wholesale price. They're buying it at a manufacturer's price. They have a lot more margin to play with. Who do they want to sell to? Do they want to sell to me at wholesale or to the customer at retail? Well, they want to sell to the customer at retail. So DTC takes on a whole new – DTC means direct-to-consumer. Uh, DTC takes on a, a whole new meaning at this point. It's from the manufacturer direct to the consumer. So what's the differentiator then? And uh, this gets back to one of your other questions. How you know, how, how do you make headway? Well, if if price is not the only factor, what are the other factors? Well, the other factor is customer service, which is what I've always preached and always tried to do. Um, and then a lot of times there can just be goodwill. Uh, for example, you know, on YouTube, I started a, a series called Watch and Learn. It's over 90 episodes deep, teaching people about watches. So I'm hoping that through those videos that don't really net me any direct profit because I'm not selling a product. I'm just teaching you about stuff that you'll see the video and say, you know, next time I want to buy a Seiko or next time I want to buy an Orient, I'm going to go, I'm going to frequent Long Island watch because they did all the, they I hear they have great customer service and the guy taught me a lot of stuff. So I want to give them my business. And as corny as that sounds, uh, it actually works because I definitely get those emails daily from people saying, you know, I'm buying from you over, I want you to know I'm buying from you over, you know, Jeff Bozos, has a lot of people call him in email, I don't understand, um, you know, because of all you taught me and, you know, all the knowledge you've given and all the good words about you on forums. Um, and that's a, you know, that's the differentiator. You know, if you don't have price to differentiate, you know, if someone's going to go to the lowest bidder, then then you can't win no matter what. Um, I had a guy just today, he wanted a watch. It was an expensive watch. And he's like, your competitors are selling it for far cheaper. And I said, well, send me a link. He sends me a link to an eBay listing. So... I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, well, that's not a competitor. Someone like me 20 years ago working out of their spare bedroom is not a competitor with overhead, employees, rent, you know, all this other stuff. Um, but if you're the kind of shopper that goes, you know, for the lowest price, that's where you're always going to go. Uh, but the, we have to, as vendors, we have to try to think about what, what is our differentiator nowadays? For me, it's customer service and, you know, education. It sounds like
0: the original plan of being the only place to sell something is as relevant as ever. Because you're talking about the challenge of competing when the consumer has multiple options to buy a watch. Explaining them why to buy from you um, isn't an impossible challenge because if you develop that relationship, they will stick with you. But it's now more challenging than ever before Um, and you agree that the consumer is in a position of, we'll just call it confusion when it comes to where should I buy my watch.
1: Right. Google is the great... What's the? I don't want to say the great. The leveler. is the great. The great. Yeah, I would say equalizer, but leveler is perfect. You know, it doesn't. You know, we're, we're not brick and mortar anymore. Location. Let's say you're you're an American. You're somewhere in the in the in the 50 or even the 48. Doesn't matter. Uh, and you want to buy a watch. What do you do? You Google it. It doesn't make a difference if the vendor is in California or Missouri or Oklahoma or Florida or New York. It's all whoever floats to the top, whether you click on sponsored listings or not. Let's say you're, you know, the game and you're like, I'm just going to go organic. Whoever floats to the top organically is probably going to be the first person you click on and ultimately might be the first person you buy. So that's, you know, that obviously becomes a very large you know carrot for a lot of vendors and it's it's obtaining that you know coveted number 1 number 2 number 3 position you know as you certainly know you know with the way you named your website and stuff um to get people you know to kind of to when, when they google something related to it f- for you to
0: pop up we're entering an era that i hate to say i want to call it is sort of a return to the traditional era when advertising marketing essentially getting your message out there is Going to be expensive again. Uh, there's going to be, you know, the, the walled communities. That you have to pay to enter. Social <clears> media <throat> distribution is going to cost money. Uh, in essence, many of those techniques that were available, you know, when when we started, obviously you started before, um, are either so oversaturated they don't work, yes, or no, no longer available, or the the service that provided it now realizes, well, my bread and butter is 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 selling uh, visibility, which is meta, essentially. You know, they sell. Visibility, uh, you know, right. we on Meta, on on Instagram, for example, have a certain number of people who have chosen to follow us. You know, it's in it's, it's I don't know close to three hundred fifty thousand or something like that on Instagram. Um, but Meta wants us to pay money to reach the people. So, I, I, again, I understand they need to make money. It's an expensive platform, but that's fundamentally different than the promise, which was. Yeah, just uh, you're going to be advertised to, but you know the whole point here is we're going to share a message with the wide people. You're going to be able to have a conversation, and this whole thing is just going to be ad supported. Um, that's that's no longer the case at all. So that's that's the status quo. My question for you as sort of an enterprising, smart individual, how do you feel that that thing that you got for free now might be something that you have to spend money on, and maybe you never anticipated having to do that?
1: So. You know, we could talk about marketing strategies. I I won't, but we could. (laughs) I see, my opinion is if Google or whoever did their job correctly, who should float to the top? The people that genuinely 100 percent belong there not the people playing the game which 20 15 20 years ago was white on white you know tag stuffing um and and crap like that it should be the people that are genuinely being talked about on reddit on watch you seek um on various forums uh just social media People that have high engagement. You, you mean, you mean
0: be... things that today AI can easily try to replicate and
1: create fraud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Unfortunately, yes. Unfortunately, that's the thing where yes. But that's
0: the problem. <laughs> that's the problem. Everyone. But of course, you, you could have a great theory, but in practice, the 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 fraudsters, the criminals, the hackers, just or just whoever. It's it's a game of cat and mouse. You know what I mean? Like yes. It's, it's this is ideally. I I agree with you on all levels, but in practice, you and I both agree from an engineering standpoint, it's hard as hell to do.
1: Yes, it is. It is. Um, I I like to feel that you'd be rewarded for doing the right thing the whole time, but I I, I know that's not the case anymore. And and just to your point, if only Google
0: was a religion
1: exactly yeah (laughs) (laughs) you know and to to your point on instagram not i i or whatever you want to call them i hate paying them to freaking put my post in front of other people i mean come on (laughs) it doesn't make any sense if it's a good post it should be shown to people and if it's a bad post don't show them and let your algorithm do the work um but you know i unfortunately that's the beast as you said that's it's it's not what we were promised but it is what we are getting and it, it is the reality these companies are making money hand over fist you know on us on a platform they developed think you know for a kick in the pants hi this is mark from Long Islandwatch.com does my voice sound familiar you might know me from my YouTube videos I've been selling watches online since 2001 ...and have grown to become the first place watch enthusiasts visit when they want to make a purchase. Although my education background is in engineering, I learned all my retail prowess from my father, who was also a business owner and watch lover. Long Island Watch features watches that enthusiasts like you enjoy from a wide variety of brands. Throw in fair pricing and the worry-free ownership that we provide, and you'll see why we have remained a reliable source for watches in the industry. My staff and I have decades of watch knowledge that you will be hard-pressed to find anywhere else. We are enthusiasts first and treat you how you want to be treated. We've got the most desirable models from the big players, such as Seiko, Citizen, and Bulova, But you know the real value lies in the more esoteric brands, such as Marathon, Formex, Islander, Phoebus, Laco, Damasco, and others. So keep in touch until you are ready to get your next timepiece. Could be tomorrow, could be next week. Our best deals are found in our members-only newsletter that you can sign up for today at longislandwatch.com. Thanks for listening.
0: Does your business model work if you still have to spend a significant amount of money in marketing? And if not, what do you think needs to change so that the economics work out?
1: Yeah, so, you know, when we started, I would say probably for the first 10 to 15 years, once I started ramping up and actually running a business, you know, what my accountant would call a business rather than a hobby, um, we spent a ton on marketing, um, a ton on uh, paid traffic, we'll call it paid traffic, right, to get the people in the door. And after after enough of that, we were finally able to dial that back and let the let the organics take over. And that's where I still am today. Of course, I have a Decent size, decent size advertising budget. Sometimes when I think about it, it's it's insane. Um, but it's not on a percentage level. It's nothing what it compared to what it used to be. Now I know other watch companies um, that are similar to mine who are still spending the old amounts, and it's in their words non-sustainable. They simply cannot keep doing it. They can't. You know, I know people that are paying thirty percent. 35% the revenue of each item for acquisition of the customer. I mean, that's insane. Um, by the time you do cost of goods sold and everything else, you're lucky to be, you know, even turning a profit. So if that was traditional, I don't think I'd do, I, I don't think it wouldn't be a sustainable business. Also, but this is why I wouldn't have, you know, so many people on payroll and everything else that I've got going on. Um, I would say, though, that, you know, some of the things or some of the choices I've made over the years like starting a YouTube channel probably the most important decision I ever made I didn't realize it at the time definitely my most valuable social asset is the channel um, you know I didn't start Instagram until years after that uh, and that does well you know that does well also but without these social assets I certainly don't think we you know I would be where I am today
0: so now faced with the marketplace, that is in front of you and with some of the challenges that may be coming and sort of what you see, how are you revising your marketing strategy? You mentioned a little bit these YouTube videos and things like that, but you're very enterprising and you're very clever. I'm just curious what you see as being the the, the interesting strategies to develop those relationships with consumers in ways where you may not have to pay directly for
1: each of those relationships. Right. That's a really good question. Um, you know, and a lot of the marketing geniuses, I, I have a CMO and he is the genius with, with the dollars and, and the spending of them and where to allocate them. Honestly, I'll say we try a lot of different things. We'll invest a little bit in different things here and there and we'll kind of see what sticks, but not to, I don't want to bury the lead because I don't know if you're going to get there eventually, but launching my own brand was probably the single most important thing I've ever done in the company in 20 years. Because by launching my own brand of watches, accessories, etc., I have made the store sole source for an item. Now, all I have to do is create a demand for that item, which don't forget, I already had... 15 to 17 years of customers under my belt create demand for that item and if the people want that item, they only have one place to buy it from. That's me and that is the sustainability that I'm looking for and that will definitely, that's what keeps the company going now. Uh, It's what you know, we'll keep it going in the future. I like to say, come into the store, shop for a Citizen, shop for a Seiko, but leave with an Islander because that's really the end goal for me. Um, just because of obviously all the, I said I said before, you know, DTC, when you go in from basically from the manufacturer direct to the consumer, there's so much more, you know, uh, margin, you know, in there rather than buying from the wholesaler and going to the consumer. But that's definitely what I consider now to be the, the most important thing whether it be from the marketing aspect uh, or from from any other aspect in, in generating uh, a con- consumer value, uh, building consumer lifetime value, uh, you know stuff like that, all all those metrics.
0: So let me sort of translate this to the, the core idea. You're saying that all the permutations, all the different types of ideas you have, it all boils down to needing to have more margin control because you're going to have to spend money to marketing, and the only way that you can ensure that makes sense for you is if it's a product that no one else but you sells or controls the cost of.
1: Basically back to the beginning of this whole business where I got watches that no one else sold. Now, I couldn't control the cost of it, but I could control. I was pretty much sole source. Um, You ask anybody, would they rather... You know, just using round numbers, would they rather buy a watch for fifty and sell for a hundred, or buy a watch for twenty-five and sell for a hundred? I mean, no, no one's going to tell you, you know, the former. Everyone's going to want the latter. Uh, and and that, I like to say that, you know, I, I have staff that packs and ships full time. For them to pack and ship a Seiko is the same time for them to pack and ship an Islander. So that overhead is fixed. I would rather make more money and have them ship the Islander now let's let me point
0: out the fact and I want to talk about your watch Islander, but now you have Island Watch, which is mm-hmm. a website that sells both Islander watches and continues to be the store to sell all these other things. Yeah. you haven't gone completely over you still no. carry a, a bunch of brands, you just yeah. also have your own yeah. why Why was it more uh I and mean, then maybe it 's because you're very risk averse but why are you now? <laughs> Uh, maybe you just have the time being both a brand person and still running a store. Why not one or the other?
1: Because I'm, I'm realistic. Um, I know that not everybody is going to want an Islander. Uh, they should, but not everyone's going to want one. And as I said before, you know, Islanders, well, they'll get people in the store now, but they won't get, you know, you know, you ask 10 people on the street, have you ever heard of an Islander? I would be surprised if one person said yes. You ever hear of Citizen, you know, nine of them are going to say yes, maybe even 10. Um, But, no, I like being, you know, watches are uh, part of my life. Uh, I love watches. You know, I have a watch chest that holds 250 watches. Uh, You know, the store carries now three, about three dozen brands. I love watches, uh, and I want to always carry them. It just so happened that, you know, the brand never became splintered off into its own company. It's kind of. One in one in the same, I guess, of of the website itself. Uh, that's whether that was a mistake or not. You know, when I started the brand four years ago, it was something that probably won't manifest itself for a long time, as far as from a financial and business aspect. But no, I I wouldn't want to live solely on my own brand because I, variety is certainly the spice of life. And for me to think that Islander can cater to my entire customer base, it can't and it won't. Um, even though there's you know over 200 SKUs right now in the wow. in the in the lineup, um, definitely the other three or four thousand watches that I carry from the other brands will, you know, keep people shopping in the store. When did you launch Islander? September 2019. Okay, so right, wow. Okay, great timing.
0: Um, yeah, actually it was. <laughs> <laughs> it actually was. And okay, so that's good to know. I, I mean, I'm looking at the watches right now, and knowing what I know about brand entrepreneurs and you as being a risk averse person. I'm guessing that it's not going to be until seven, eight, nine, maybe even 10 years into running it where you start to see Mark coming out as the artist, as the designer, as someone who is really trying to do something fresh. Right now what I see is like
1: uh, the best of what you like. Like when I see this, I'm yeah. like, I know the watches this guy likes. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and you know yeah, I make I mean? no bones about it. You know, I started the business um, when I found out that Seiko was discontinuing the SKX Uh 007, 009, whatever. And, uh, but you're like, people was- still want those. People still want them? Well, people want them. I was selling a few thousand of them a year. And I was like, oh, my goodness. There's going to be a major shortfall in revenue if I don't do something about this. And people have been arguing for years over, you know, you need to – why doesn't the SKX have sapphire and blah, 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 blah. And then I was in a meeting in Basel, and I did get a sneak peek at the 5KX that was the successor to the SKX. And I looked at it, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. It doesn't have mineral crystal. It's a push-pull crown. And they lowered the water resistance to 100 meters. I'm like the die-hard community is going to have a hissy fit, yeah. And so I knew immediately that I could come up with something that was "quote unquote" better than the SKX. Of course, no brand heritage, which uh, some people bothers, some people doesn't bother others, um, and that's where. Uh, that's where that was born. And, you know, easily the first, I don't even know the number, 20 or 30 SKUs were all based off of Seiko models, turtles, 013s, 007, samurais. And then we started to get some of our own DNA. There's certainly designs that look nothing like other pieces out there. And now there's a guy that works for me, Ryan, who does, um, a majority of the designs, uh, the, like the North Port, the Sands Point, and all this other stuff that's really maybe Seiko-esque, but definitely has its own design flair. And we keep progressing. Uh, but hey, I'll tell you, the Seiko stuff sells, so I'd be a fool not to um, not to continue to do it. So
0: in a great legacy of sort of mercantilism, one of the things that you do so well is you identify a need. And you say, Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to satisfy that need with uh, basically the best price possible. And that is a sort of time-honored tradition into into being a a merchant. And that is your strategy now. And maybe eventually you will go into the the steps of I'm not just responding to demand, but I'm creating some demand. Mm -hmm. But I guess the question is to, to maintain and continue with this theme, which is I'm learning about demand and trying to respond to it. Where do you continue to do your market research? It was you, uh, originally, that would be on the forums. And as a a member of the enthusiast community, you could identify these things. But as time goes on, as you age and new generations go in, you know, like, yeah. Yeah,
1: I'll say, you know, probably – You know, majority of my job still, and people are shocked when they see that an email is answered by me. I still answer probably seventy to seventy-five percent of the emails, and it's hundreds a day. Um, And that is honestly, quote unquote, market research. Right. Uh, You know, just listening to people, what they say, what they're unhappy about, or what they want to do with something. Um, I like this, but it needs to have that. Um, So we, we, you know, we get. You know, we get info from there. And, of course, just from seeing other brands' releases and how consumers react to them, um, that helps us shape where we're going. Um, And then, quite honestly, and this is probably something that you shouldn't do, but a lot of times we just make things that we like um, and that doesn't always work because what we like is not what other people like, as we've learned with a few of, of of the releases that have flopped. But you know, invariably, sometimes we get a bellwether that just kind of rides off into the sunset. Um, but yeah, it's an, it's a it's a ever it's an elusive goal, and it's it's always moving. Um, but that's part of the fun, I guess, is chasing that goal.
0: The brands you carry, moving, shifting focus, uh, not not mm-hmm. the Islander, but the brands you have. Uh, a lot a, a lot of brands that I would gladly wear, a lot of them, some I don't recognize, but these are mostly solid brands. You know, if you know watches, you're like, okay, this is this is not just a bunch of silly watches. These are like this yes. is serious watches. Again, really, really no focus on what I'll call like branding that mm-hmm. uh, this is like these are cool watches from little from often little companies, very utility based. But my question is, what do the brands themselves want out of you? They you know, they have some choices in who they can work with. I'm sure they say, hey, Mark, mm-hmm. it would be great if you could do this, great if you do that. What are they asking of you?
1: Mm, I could... <laughs> I gotta, gotta be nice. <laughs> um, I think people are surprised when they hear that a lot of the bigger brands, which I can only get now, obviously, because I'm a bigger store and, and carry more weight, that... Watches to a lot of these bigger brands are just, they're, they're commoditized. They're commodities. Um, it's nothing but a skew to the salesman and to the point where the salesman doesn't even understand. Maybe knows what an automatic movement is, but doesn't know a four R thirty six from a you know a six R thirty five, and okay. what the inherent differences and stuff like that. Um, so, what do the brands want from me? I don't think anything. Um, I don't believe that I am even a blip on their radar. Um, there are much larger bloggers, and I'm sure you know who they are. Um, that you know, I think they pay much more attention to, um, but it's not me. I I just think for me, they just want to check on time um, and to portray their products in a good light. Uh, If I ever did an expose on the inner workings of the biggest watch brands, it would be a hilarious book because it's absolutely crazy, the stuff that I deal with on a, a fairly frequent basis. And it's not only me. I talk to other decent sized players in the field and they're like, yeah, Mark, it's not just you. It's, it's us too. They're doing that to us also. And you know, I look at it like you know if someone came to you and said you know ariel you've got this model abc123 you know i bought six last week i sold all six i want to buy 20 this week you, would you ever say yeah i can't sell you 20 that just i just can uh, i'll give you i'll give you four this time i, they, I don't understand they, they don't it, let you it, grow as your complaint no they don't and not only they they don't let you i guess what they do just doesn't make sense to me half the time as i guess as a, again as an entrepreneur as a as the owner of the business it doesn't make sense to me um they they play these little games in the background and i don't get it it's it's
0: so i again i don't i don't disagree in in my own sense i do business with the brands very differently but i guess yes what what mark is saying is that mostly foreign-owned watchmakers do business in what we feel as Americans is a non-straightforward way. They don't necessarily say what they mean. They don't necessarily ask for what they want. You Mm -hmm. have to spend a lot of time with the relationship, talking to them carefully to understand what even makes sense. Watch brands often will want things that uh, appear to be very detrimental for either their short- or long-term goals. There always seems to be some type of trade-off As as an American with sometimes a very practical mindset, um, we see what often appears to be a a lack of strategy, a lack of commitment, a lack of consistency, um, and their priorities seem maybe strange by by our uh, our measure. But I would yeah I mean yeah yeah, I would say a
1: lot of a lot of times as I'd say as as Americans you know we we are you know global. You know, we're looking for, I've uh, got the word I generally use, but you know, we're looking to be the best. You know, if let's grow this thing and let's do the best we can. Whereas it, it's, the, it actually is American companies also that are doing this to me, but I'll, I'll revert, I'll go back to, you know, some of the foreign European companies. Um, world domination. That's what I'm looking for. They don't want world domination. They're just happy sp- selling their watches, however many they make a year, 2000. And that's it. They, have no aspirations to There's sell in a year.
0: There's another side to it that I, again, I, I have to see all sides. I have to be friends with right. everyone and I make it my right. job to be sort of an academic, but I'll tell you a side that I've seen and that we take for granted as Americans. You know, we grew up in a place of relatively high business ethics, a rule of law, a court system that is, exists to help resolve disputes, uh, pretty clear use of, you know, lawyers, contracts and established best practices. Um, A lot of these people come from places where that is not necessarily the case or as strong, and -hmm. therefore they believe that we're there to cheat them. Maybe they're there to cheat us, but I guess they don't recognize is we're willing to grow a business with a foreign company who we may not actually see on a regular basis because we're committed to a mutually beneficial sort of transparent relationship where things are made clear and if it doesn't work out, you stop. They are always thinking that someone's going to try to deceive them, uh, use them, exploit them. Maybe they've done that to others. And so they oftentimes don't assume that an arm's length distance – a relationship of mutual respect and transparency is even possible or what people want. And for me, that's really the big difference because Americans, they're like, we, we, they, we seem like kids to them. They're like, hey, we're going to do business. This is going to be great. And they're like, you guys are so naive. And, and I think it's not, we're, we're naive. We just don't come into it thinking, how can we exploit them?
1: Right. And that, that's definitely true. But, you know, and then there's some. Some brands I'll deal with and, you know, the model, they'll have a model that is just, uh, it's a runaway. Every time they make it, it sells out. Well, instead of making 50 next time, make 100, make 200. If it keeps selling out every time, make more. The worst thing you could do is not have something the customer wants. Um, the, the, the FOMO only lasts so long and then, <laughs> You know, no one wants it anymore. But no, I get it. Definitely a different culture sense. Um, definitely well, a, different, a different way of doing business. Yep.
0: Maybe not in your little sort of neck of the woods, but you have to agree that this watch industry is guilty of overproduction constantly. So you're oh, saying that they don't yes. make a lot, but at the same time, it's in a larger context if they make yeah, too much.
1: Yeah, but that's, you know, I would say that's not the companies I deal with. Not the for companies the most, do it, but for, again, for, the context... Right. Correct. Yes, in, you're totally correct, yes, because, and in case people don't know, you know, the manufacturer, you know, they have to constantly annualize numbers, right? And, you know, last year we made 30,000 watches. This year we've got to make 40,000, and they make 40,000, and they push them out to distributors, and distributors are forced to buy them, and the distributors at the end of the year are sitting on 15,000 watches that haven't sold in 12 months, and that's when the whole gray market develops, and, and I fully get that.
0: And the problem is that, in a sense, you can't avoid it, but you're dealing with a factory. And the only thing a factory wants to do is keep making more of whatever that factory makes. They don't care about anything else. They're just like, we can still operate as a factory, right? And so the watch industry demand waxes and wanes, even though interest in watches remains high. But as far as the factories are concerned, people got to buy brand-newly-made watches all the time.
1: Right, yes okay. constant demand
0: and that is that is actually one of the weaknesses with i think you know the, the the japanese companies because their entire ability to charge as little as they do is based upon a certain large high volume of production which again totally makes right. sense but yes. within the context i think seiko has been especially exposed to this is they've really tried to increase their rates because they've reduced um production and they've seen a lot of pushback the the, the community isn't like We don't like Seiko enough to pay whatever for your watches. Like, you were cool and exciting because it was a lot of watch for the money. At three, four, five times the price of what I was used to spending, I'll go buy something else.
1: Right, I get that. Yeah, you're right. No, it's definitely, there's definitely more sides to the coin, especially from the manufacturer's standpoint, you know, versus, you know, either the the vendor's standpoint, even the customer's standpoint. The customer honestly doesn't care. they usually buying on, Price approximately. That's how they make a brand decision.
0: Does it surprise you now in 2023 how popular watches are? And has your business benefited from the sort of overall uptick in watch interest in the mainstream?
1: Yeah, you know, I, it's one of those things. I'm like, wow, well, you know, will this business be handed down to my kids? And I don't, I wouldn't want them to do it. But I don't know where it'll be, where the wristwatch business will be in ten, fifteen years. But I do feel that the Apple Watch, Smartwatch craze certainly has helped. Um, the old, you know, rising tide, you know, whatever it is, floats old boats or whatever. Um, I do feel that that is certainly helping the industry as a whole because if you can get a watch on the wrist of a 16-year-old or a 15-year-old, maybe one day when they get a job, they'll want something on their wrist that tells time that it won't constantly be beeping and buzzing and telling them their heart rate, uh, that, you know, we have to get watches on kids' wrists, uh, so that there actually is <laughs> some sort of an industry, you know, over the next few years. Um, I know when, when the Apple watch came out, a lot of people said this was the end. And I don't think so. Just like the, the MoonSwatch, man, that was probably one of the best things to happen to the wristwatch industry in, I don't know, since the quartz crisis, I guess, you know, in, in, in booming uh, popularity, it got people talking about watches again. And I don't care if they if you bought one of those. That's great. If you weren't a watch guy and now you're a watch guy or gal and you're going to now, you know, start building a collection based on something that, you know, Swatch X Omega did, excellent. I have nothing wrong with that. Um, I – hope the industry continues to grow but you know i can't say that it will I, I i don't i don't know where it's going you know who the hell knows what you know technology will supplant it next
0: is there merit to selling smart watches alongside what you sell on long island watch
1: not for me personally. I don't sell any smartwatches, um, whether by design or whatever. You know, I've been approached by one or two makers of smartwatches to carry them. And I'm just, it's not where I live personally. I, you know, I own one kind of smartwatch. It's a, it's a Garmin running watch. Um, but that's it. You know, 80% of what I carry is mechanical automatic. And that's kind of the foundation of my business. That's how I started. And that's kind of, that's the way I want to keep going. I don't want to go into that whole tech thing because I feel that if you want a smartwatch, there's places to buy a smartwatch. Um, there's, yeah, I can compete much better on the mechanical, automatic, affordable market. That, that's exactly where I live. So I think what you're saying, of course, makes sense because it
0: reflects your own interests and, and where your own uh, passion and, and of course, experience lays. But I think that maybe not yet, but in a couple of years, especially as there's a little bit more of a um, uh, what I call it the generic smartwatch market, where it isn't just the mm-hmm. name bar- brands. Sure. But you know, if kids are shopping for smartwatches and they see that in the same store, traditional watches are there it seems to me a very logical way to get them introduced sure. to both, right? Because Absol- absolutely, the question still remains tomorrow, how are we going to get people into watches? Uh, we've You've already shared that it's expensive to do and hard. <clears throat> of course, a blog to watch is one way of doing it. But, you know, we speak to a certain slice of the consumer community. We're not obviously going to speak to everyone all the time. Businesses like Long Island Watch and entrepreneurs like uh, like Mark... Uh, benefit from there being an enthusiast community you can sell against the enthusiast community but what you've said which i agree is making your own enthusiast community and making your own enthusiasts is hard hopefully you leave mm-hmm. it to the professionals like 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 me but right. you service them but there needs to be watch nerds we'll call them that out there free to do business with in the first place and and, and that's a necessary species of consumer for your business model to continue
1: do you agree disagree Oh, I fully agree. Uh, 100%. I mean, you you, you said it perfectly. Um, and if, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, smartwatches are a little more, I guess, I can't say ubiquitous, they're ubiquitous now. I mean, uh, you know, I'm sure you risk, you risk spot all, all the time when you're traveling or whatever. Oh, yeah, just like you. Uh, and it's, I would say, what do you think the smartwatch percentage is on people's wrists, 60%, 70%? I mean, it's kind of insane. It's um, it's, imp- it's
0: impressively high. Look, I, I, it was about a decade ago where I wrote an article in a blog to watch that said smartwatches are going to be the highway to high-end watches, and so I'm so happy that you you, you validated that. But yeah. I also understood from the moment that the Apple Watch originally came out, I think it was like 2014 or something like that, mm-hmm. that this, this was going to take over – all the empty wrists. If there was an empty wrist out there, it was going to have a smartwatch sooner or later. And it's happened fast.
1: Yes, it did. It went, it, um, I would say, zero, zero to 60 in, in, no, in no time at all.
0: And the funny thing is, you were there too. The, the, the watch industry couldn't have been more dismissive or misunderstanding for the first year or two. I mean, they had just no idea what was going on.
1: Well, this is the same, but don't forget, though, dude, this is the same industry that said internet will never survive for watches. This whole (laughs) e-com thing, you know, people will never buy a $300 watch online. They're going to want to walk into a store. And, you know, these dinosaurs couldn't get it more wrong. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: I, I, I totally agree. Mark, we're basically out of time. We'll have to do this again. But just tell yeah. people where they can uh, learn more about you or check out more uh, stuff from you on the internet. What's the website, any social media presence?
1: Oh, I, I appreciate that. So it's uh, longislandwatch.com, uh, YouTube channel as well. Um, I think it's like at Island Watch. Or, you know, and on Instagram, there's Long Island Watch. And there's Islander Watch, which is dedicated just to the Islander Watch brand.
0: This has been the Superlative Podcast with Mark Frankel, founder of Long Island Watch. Mark, thank you so much.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Superlative Podcast. This show relies on support from you, the audience. Please subscribe, review, and share Superlative with your friends. To get the latest watch news and enthusiast commentary, also listen to the Blog to Watch Weekly Podcast. For show ideas, comments, or business, please contact us at podcasts at a blogtowatch.com.